Hello, everyone. How are you? At all of our campuses, would you stand with me for just a moment? Everywhere you are, even you guys in your living room around the country, just stand with me for a moment. John said it this way. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fulfillment of every desire of our heart through the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that your heart for us is a heart of care and compassion. The fact that you would want to be with us is overwhelming, and we're grateful for it. So we would ask you, Lord, in these next few moments that you give us a, a clear picture of who you are. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and it's always been your glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I got a little sad this week. Uh, I met yesterday with some really smart people on my team because we were in the midst of planning the teaching calendar for 2019, and I have sitting there the person who is responsible for kind of managing my life when it relates to the teaching calendar, and the person responsible for managing my life relates to my outside of teaching responsibilities as a pastor here, and then I had the one who's responsible for it all, my wife, and we were all in this room together, and we always begin are in those meetings by looking at the last quarter of the year, and I thought, wow, we got about six more times to gather to talk about this thing called 40. It's been quite the journey, hasn't it? To begin to understand that it's believing that saves you, it's following that sets you free, and to watch the Israelites walk out of is out of Egyptian captivity and walk into what their heart was created for. We've, we've really watched, it's more than a step or an announcement from a campus leader. We've really watched Moses move from following his own heart to following the God of the universe. And in following him, he begins to find a freedom that he never could have dreamed. He begins to know his God, and his God begins to know him, and he begins to lead this community. And then it turns. He, begin, he begins to see that God has ordained all of this for this moment in time for him to do something to bring God glory. It's why we over and over again talk about finding, following, knowing, and doing and yet what Moses thought he needed was not what he needed. Come on, anybody ever discovered that what you thought you needed isn't what you needed? The gospel according to the great theologian Garth Brooks, I thank God for unanswered prayers. Come on, some old people, you remember that? The whole thing turns when Moses realizes that what he needs is not better leadership skills. What he needs is not manna from heaven. What he needs is not water from a rock. What he needs is not principles and platitudes. What he needs is the presence of God in his life. And 
And it's the tipping point in this journey when he says, when God says, I'll give you everything you want, but you can't have me. And he says, unless your presence goes with me, I don't want to go. And so we spent last weekend with me passionately pleading with you to consider moving to the place empowered by God's spirit where you want his face more than you want his hand. It's what I, where I believe freedom is really found. And I think there's no greater picture of God's heart for his presence in your life and my life than this picture we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at. I'm, I'm going to nerd out a bit. I hope you'll nerd out with me for just a little while. In fact, in Moses' account of his life in this journey, of the 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, almost 15 of them are about this one topic. It's crazy. Most of us honestly skip over these chapters because they seem to be some divine to-do list that have nothing to do with us. But it's the story and the detail of God's instruction to build a tabernacle where we find not only God's glory, but the gospel of Christ revealed. So let me begin this way in the few moments we have together this weekend. I think if he can take 15 chapters, we can take two weeks to talk in depth about this concept. It's interesting. Some of you might get confused if you're, if you're really linear in nature. If, if, if things have to progress in a certain linear fashion for it to make sense for you. Because in chapter 25, 26, and 27... God gives instructions for building the tabernacle, and then he comes back in the chapter 35, 36, and 37, and he repeats what happened in earlier. It's like he tells them to do it, and then they give the account of them doing exactly what he called them to do. It begins with God saying, hey, I want you to bring your best, and they begin to bring gold and, and uh precious metals and, 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 and fine fabrics. And it's interesting if you don't run over this in Exodus 25 because the irony can't be lost on you that God is asking them to give him what he's already given them in the first place. The only place they could receive these things is when they plundered the Egyptians and when God gave them victory over the Amalekites. And at its core, what we just did together at every campus, what we do in the center of every service is a clear indicator of our willingness to follow when we are willing to give back to God what he's already given to us in the first place. But he says, the reason I want you to do this, I want you to see it here in the book of Exodus. When he says in Exodus 25 and verse 8, I'm trying to learn how to work this thing, I had it upside down. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And all of these chapters and all of this detail is going to be about God building a place to dwell among his people. Now think with me about this for a moment. 
I don't care if you're 21 or 107. I don't care if you're Anglo or African. I don't care if you're a senior citizen or whether you're a toddler. I don't care how much money you have or how little you have. I don't care what your religious background. When God created you, he wove into your DNA a desire for home. A desire for a connection to the one that created you. Whether you walked with him for 40 years or whether you have rejected him your entire life, the restlessness that every one of us feel is born out of a desire for his presence. I mean, think about it with me for a moment, if you would, that that the fundamental desire of every human being is to be in God's presence. It began in the Garden of Eden. The power of the garden, God's original creation, was it in the cool of the evening God came and did what? And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known that God was, was divinely connected to the heart level of his people. They were in his presence. And when they made the decision to choose the one thing God said you can't have, the tree of knowledge of evil, other than the tree of life, which was God's presence, they were exiled from the garden. And the punishment was not that women were going to have pain in childbirth, that men were going to have to work. It was that they were not in his presence anymore. It was a story of exile. And from the moment it was broken in the garden, God is looking for ways to get back into the presence of people. See, the good news of the Bible, the message of the Bible, is more than the power of God's presence. The message of the Bible, the good news is that God wants to be with me. And I think many of us find that hard to believe. That God wants to be with me. See, the power of the words in Exodus 25 is that in the middle of their wandering... God moves heaven and earth. Why? Because he wants to dwell with his people. He wants to, original language, tabernacle with his people. Why? Because God's greatest desire is to be with his creation. And your heart, whether you recognize it or not, is to be home. And so it's 15 chapters in detail about the character and the nature of God. Would, would you all agree that if I were to walk into your home or you were to walk into my home, you would have a more clear picture of who I really was? If you were to walk into Micah, the home that Micah and I have together, the first thing you would see on the wall is you would see pictures of our grandchildren, lots of pictures of our grandchildren. You know that that relationship is not just something I kid about on the weekends, but it's something that 
really is valuable to me. You would look all over our home, and what you would see was you would see in different creative forms scriptures that have come to mean much to us. And because you've heard me say from this stage about the challenges of emotional illness and struggle through anxiety and depression, that you would know that these constant reminders of who God is are, are more than artwork in our home. It is constant reaffirmation to be reminded in the darkest of moments of who God says he is and who God says I am. If you were to walk into our home unannounced, you would find out that we value community over neatness most of the time. That if we have a choice between sitting down with someone we love and sharing our heart or making sure the corners of the crevices of our baseboards are clean, we're going to pick relationship every time. You see what's the house that someone lives in says something about them, right? I'm laughing because a few months ago, one of my friends whose initials are Jennifer Day <laughs> was putting her house on the market and one of the things her real estate agent said to her was, you need to get some of you out of this house. Why? Because if a buyer sees you in the house, it's hard for them to picture them in the house. You with me? So when God says, I want you to build a house in which I can dwell, when you begin to see the detail of the house, you begin to see the character, the personality, the value of the house in which the one lives. It's why I think it's important for us to look at some of the kind of academic detail, if you will, of the tabernacle. It's interesting. Again, I could nerd out forever and lose most of you, but the word tabernacle, let me tell you this, this structure, it literally means, it means a dwelling place. And this place, when you read in Exodus, you can tell it was designed by God himself to the most intricate of details. Uh, the entire court, see it faces east, the entire court, wrote some of this down, isn't as big as we would think it would be. It's 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and it has a 300 foot entrance. The curtains around this tabernacle are seven and a half feet tall. So what you've got is a rectangle made up of two squares. The Holy of Holies, that's this, is a perfect square. It's what we see in the design of it. And then that, that perfect square in the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle itself is contained in one of the two squares. The tabernacle is in the same proportion of this entire courtyard around it. It's important to understand that in the tabernacle, everything moves from greater, the Holy of Holies, to less. In fact, when you read the detail of the story, what you find out is that the most precious of materials are used in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant stands. And the farther you move away from the place where God lives, his presence, the less valuable the materials are. We'll get to that in a moment. But it also is interesting because what it pictures 
is it pictures Moses on the mountain for 40 days. And he's near God, and then there are the elders down the mountain, and then there are people at the base of the mountain. There's all this imagery in the picture wanting us to understand how valuable God thinks being with us really is. Now, when you come to the New Covenant, Jesus Day, New Testament Day, you, you need to understand that all the words that are being spoken to these Jews are being spoken through the paradigm of this being the center of their existence. You with me? Like, I'm telling you things that five-year-old Jewish kids would know because they'd heard it over and over and over again. It was burned in their memory from the moment they could remember anything. And so when the New Testament is written, and when the writers are looking for imagery to explain theological realities, they're going to use these kind of details. Hebrews is a great place to see how the connection between the old and the new. And Hebrews chapter 9 kind of describes this place. It says this in verse 1. It says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the tables, the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place or the holy of holies which had a gold, the golden jar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had been budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Version 2, right? Tablets 2.0, because Moses broke the first set. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we can't discuss these things in detail now. So what I want us to do is as we think about the details of this tabernacle, this symbol of God's commitment to dwelling with us, I just want to, this weekend, just talk about two aspects of this tabernacle and how it relates to you and me. Is that okay with everybody? Will you stay with me? Okay, so let's begin where God's people would have begun, where the Jews would have begun. They begun at the altar of the burnt offering. The altar of the burnt offering. In fact, most Jews never got past this big courtyard. This is where they all gathered, right? Only the, we'll get this in a moment, but only the priest and only once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. So there's a curtain here to come in here. There's a curtain here that only like the elite get to come in. And then like the All-American first team, the varsity gets to go in here, the captain one time a year. So this is central. It's the first thing they see, and for many of them, it's the only thing they see. And it's called the altar of burnt offering. It was made of bronze. It was a square box, and there was a grate in the middle. And it was the place where sacrifice had to be made before you could come into the presence of God. Are you with me? Because at its core, the story of the exile and return is a story of atonement. 
If you've ever wondered, well, why doesn't God just do this? Why did God have to do this? If God cared so much about being with Adam and Eve, why were they banished from the garden? If God cared so much about Moses, why did he make him go 40 years in the desert? I'll tell you why. Because we serve a holy God who cannot be in the presence of unholiness. God is not grandpa in the sky who's going to wink and say, it's okay, boy, we'll get it next time. You get this picture when the, when the outer curtain opens that God is holy and that you are not. And this place was literally a bloody mess because doves and pigeons and sheep and goats and all these animals are being sacrificed here. But according to the book of Hebrews, not one sin is forgiven. It is a temporary atonement. What, is, what, what does this tell us about God? I need you to stay with me because some of you, like your religious upbringing, the reason you got out of coming to church is coming back up in you right now because you heard preachers bang pulpits and talk about how holy God was and how terrible you were, and you thought to yourself, you know what, uh, I can feel guilty on my own. I'm not going to spend a week ever, oh, an hour every week feeling guilty. But you've reacted against that. And somehow God has become Papa in the sky who just winks away your sin. But see, his house shows his character and his nature. God is not like you and God is not like me. We are small and he is big. We are finite and he is infinite. He is holy and we are not. And all of the blood that was shed in the Water that was used to wash the blood off in that moment was temporary in nature until the ultimate sacrifice came in the person of Jesus Christ. And he was sacrificed because our unholiness could only be paid for by blood. And so for those of you like me who grew up in a religious system that seem to value guilt over grace. Come on, somebody. The greatest compliment you give preachers in my churches growing up was, boy, you really made me feel bad today. You really stepped on my toes today. And it was like a sign of spirituality. For those of us who are still punishing ourselves because we are aware of our unholiness and our own uncleanness, we must remember that the character and nature of God is that your sin and my sin must be dealt with and we must refuse to punish ourselves for something Jesus died for. Quit beating yourself up about your mistakes because somebody was beaten on your behalf. That the character and the nature of God was because he was so desperate to dwell with us for us to experience his presence, that he sent himself as the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me. The Hebrew writer, again, we don't have 
time for all of the Hebrew writers going to talk about how water washing only lasts for a moment. And any of us who have raised kids know that to be true, right? Especially if you raise a little boy and, you know, you get him, you like wrestling him to get him in the bathtub. And then, you know, four days later, he's like, why do I got to take a bath? I took one four days ago. Well, son, because you smell like death. Because <laughs> it only works for a moment. But the, the washing through the blood of Jesus Christ it's permanent. It's eternal. It's not temporary. It's not spiritual to feel miserable about yourself. It literally negates the power of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it may feel humble, but it's not holy. And many of us miss the presence of God. Because we're still standing at the altar of an offering, somehow believing that we've got to pay for our sins, and our sins have been paid for. Because God wants to be with you. And it changes the way we see ourselves. Look at me, everybody. And until we change the way we see ourselves, how could we ever see people differently than that? Now, next weekend, I want to talk to you about the table of the showbread, about the altar of incense, about the golden lampstand. There's so much beauty and imagery in this reality for us. But if we're going to begin at the beginning, then let's close this weekend at the end in the Holy of Holies. This place. It's where the Ark of the Covenant is really like a chest. I don't want to spend time converting cubits into feet but I mean it's a chest it's like a chest now I want you to picture this high priest who gets to go in one time a year who is wearing bells as a part of the garment we're going to talk about the high priest next week wearing bells as a part of his garment in case in the presence of a holy God he had missed something somewhere and he got struck dead in fact some Traditions say, well, it's not historical fact, but some traditions say that the one time a year that the high priest would go in, they would tie a rope around his leg because if he died, they'd want to pull him out with anybody else going in there and being struck dead in the greatness of God. This one time a year, and he comes and he offers all of this, and he's, he's covered in blood, and there's blood all over his, these ornaments that he's wearing, and he washes at the, at the levier, and then he walks through this, and the, finally the curtain is open, and he's got this sense of this holy presence of God. And what's the first thing he sees? He sees the mercy seat. Not the judgment seat, but the mercy seat. Look at me, everybody, because at the core of God's nature is mercy and not judgment. There's a reason that in the place that represented the essence of his presence, the first thing you would see is the cherubim and gold on what is called the mercy seat. See, judgment has been paid at the altar now all you have left is mercy. But here's the problem most of us have. Look at me. What we think is judgment is really mercy, and what we think is mercy is really judgment. Sometimes mercy doesn't feel like judgment. And most of the time, judgment doesn't feel like mercy. 
I won't go into the details of the story because I didn't, I forgot to ask him beforehand. Some of you know the story, but my son, as a teenage boy, did what most teenage boys did. He made some decisions that were not the best decisions, and he had a kind of a partner in crime, a guy that lived around the corner that he's a dear friend of his day, and the craziest thing is they would make this decision that they really knew they shouldn't be make, and when they made it, the first time they made it, the daddy of the boy, his buddy around the corner, caught him, made him come and confess to me, and there was punishment involved for the decision that he made, and it was, I don't know, a couple of months later maybe that he made the same decision again. And I'll never forget because he was mowing the yard and I saw this buddy's dad stop him up at the corner of the road and talk to him for a moment and then drive home. And I didn't think of it until Ross walked in about 30 minutes later because I didn't know that the father had said, if you don't tell him, I'm going to tell him. And his mother was out of town and it was just me and him. I'll never forget it. It was one of the greatest theological lessons of my life. Because he walked in and he said, and he said Dad, I've got to tell you something. And he confessed. And it was only the Spirit of God, I don't have this in me, that I looked at him and said, man, God must really love you. And he said, what do you mean? I said, every time you make this decision, you get caught. And you have to suffer the consequences for the decision that you made. Can you imagine? See, Ross, that's mercy. Judgment. It feels like judgment, but it's mercy. You know what judgment would have been? that your sin didn't find you out and it became a pattern of behavior in your life that you had to suffer the ramifications for for the rest of your life that would be judgment not mercy and I believe that many times in my life I'll just speak for me in my life things that feel harsh from the Lord are really his greatest sense of mercy and that as a believer that I, as a 55-year-old believer, I have come to believe that I have to live in the tension between God's holiness and his mercy in my life. And I have to fall at the feet of the ultimate sacrifice for me to have any hope at all. Because one of the hardest things for me to believe Is that God wants to be with me. But when I began to believe that God wants to be with me, that Jesus paid it all, and that God's heart, because of that atoning sacrifice for me, is mercy, that He has my best interest at heart. Look at me, everybody. Then I start living free. Then I find my promised land. So the writer of Hebrews says this. He says this. Then when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Y'all with me? 
the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? And he concludes with this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence Confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. Are you hearing this? Are you hearing this? The curtain into the Holy of Holies was Jesus' body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And having our bodies washed with pure water, lest us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. It sounds like living free to me. And it's not because we've done anything. It's because Jesus did everything. You want me to sum up the Bible for you? God wants to be with you. The unmistakable power of his presence is the thing that transforms the human heart. And when we were rejected in the garden, he came back to dwell with us in the tabernacle. And when God's people rejected it in the tabernacle, John chapter 1 says, That Jesus came and he dwelled among us. Guess what that word is? Tabernacle. He came and he tabernacled among us. And thank you God. That I don't have to have nasty goat blood on my hands. I don't need some holy person to enter the holy place. That I have full and complete access. And that I have the opportunity to join God's mission on earth. You know what God's mission on earth is? That his presence might be experienced by everyone on the planet. Tabernacle, Jesus, and the church. The greatest mission we have on the planet is to not save people from hell, but to allow them to experience God's presence on earth so that his kingdom might come and his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. I just think it's worth giving your life to. Whether you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, a student, a pastor, a stay-at-home mom, or a retired grandfather, the opportunity you hold the presence of God and to allow others to experience that is a mission worth giving your life to. And you know what? As the old man who's been doing this for 25, 30 years of my life, I can say in full confidence with not one bit of salesmanship, I think the greatest gift that I can give you is an opportunity for you to join in that mission of bringing God's kingdom to bear here on earth. It's why every year in Cross Timbers for the last now 18 years, 
toward the end of every year, we celebrate together in what we call a celebration offering. We take a special offering at the end of the year. And the money that's given over and above our regular offerings here at Cross Timbers, what they go to do is they go to further the mission of bringing the presence of God in our lives and in the lives of other people. Through the years, as we've grown as a church family, not just numerically, but in faith, guess what? Our goals have grown. And we watch God change the lives of hungry kids in India. We've watched ministries in our local communities grow and flourish because of the gifts that have been given in the celebration offering, a commitment to being on mission here at Cross Timbers. And I'm so excited to tell you that this year there are two places that we sense the Lord leading us to focus our efforts. There's lots of good places, right? But you got to, where, where power comes through focus. And we feel like one place that God wants us to focus is on our ministry and commitment to next, the next generation, specifically through our school of ministry here at Cross Timbers. We've seen you guys have met so many of these young people. More and more of them are not only joining our team, but they're going back out in their communities and making a difference for God's goodness. And I just have a real sense that we're supposed to like supersize those efforts. To move from a small class that meets in the summer to three classes that meet throughout the year to expand the number of young people that we can invest in, help them learn how to follow, find, know, and do, and to take that message to a lost and dying world. And so we're believing this year that through the efforts of our church family being on that mission, that we're going to be able to raise a half a million dollars, $500,000, to enable us to greatly enlarge our efforts in this area of raising the next generation of leaders. And then the second area that we've seen God blessing, that it, it's time for us to move on mission is in our Lake Cities campus. We watched Jamie Mullins lead that campus. We watched a growing number of not just attenders, but people who are joining us as leaders, as a part of our 10,000 vision. I went there last Sunday morning to announce to them that it's time to find a permanent home for them to meet in. It's time to move from rented facilities to a permanent facility. Here's the crazy thing about it, man. Here, the crazy thing is when the Lord kind of put that on us, our, our heart and a group of really smart people, Begin to begin to look around the area. God's already beginning to open doors of places that, that are real possibilities that we can plant our flag as a church family there. And we can help more people follow Jesus, find freedom, find someone to know, and find something to do. Uh, we believe that it's going to take a million dollars for us to be able to move forward in that project together and so our goal this year is 1.5 million dollars it's not the most money we've ever raised but it is an audacious goal and it's going to take all of us together deciding to be generous our campus leaders will tell you more about it and uh in the weeks that are to come we're a few weeks away from the official start of that where people begin to make those gifts but i want to tell you something this is this is a holy endeavor i think beyond a shadow of a doubt my job my responsibility here is in concert with our elders and with other church leaders is to hear God and to clearly set the vision. That's a responsibility and a privilege that I hold. And the responsibility and the privilege you hold is your generosity gets to determine how quick the vision comes to fruition. We ain't got no back corner piles of money. I don't think God's going to drop an armored truck in front of one of our buildings and 
It's going to be generous people like you that will say, we see that to be a worthy goal and we're willing to sacrifice for it. I believe it's a part of us being filled with God's presence and bringing God's presence to bear in the rest of the world. So I'm going to be, we're going to be praying about that. I want to tell you that the last few weeks of this series, and I'm, I'm looking at the clock, you guys, and Argyle, trust me, I'm, I'm looking. But the last few weeks of this series is all going to be about what does it look like to walk out in the, with the presence of God in your life. We've seen what it's like to follow him, what freedom looks like, what it looks like to begin to do in the community. Now we're just going to see the rest of the story. God's going to give us illustrated examples of what it looks like to walk in his presence. So I want to pray. I don't know what your next step is. But I do know this. The God who is holy sent his son to die for you so that you might be with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you in Jesus' name for the beautiful imagery that we see through this dwelling place. That you're still trying to restore what was broken in Eden. And I'm grateful, Father, that you would love us enough that you would send yourself to tabernacle among us. And I'm grateful for the advantage that I have, that I am now a temple of your spirit. I have more power than I think I have. I have more authority than I usually walk in. There's more potential in my life than I can even see because you live in me. So, Father, may your... May the climactic moment of this story become the climactic moment of my life that your spirit would come and fill this temple. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.